Welcome to DevOps Accents, a podcast on everything around DevOps, public cloud, and cloud-native topics with your hosts, Pablo, Leo, and Kirill. Okay, hello, everyone. Welcome to 11th episode of DevOps Accents. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk everything around DevOps and cloud-native technology, and uh, I welcome everyone and thank you for joining us today, those who are listening to us and those who are uh, watching us, I don't know, on YouTube. Can you, can you see us? Of course you can because we have a thumbnail on top of that. But anyway, uh, I uh, encourage you to give us subscribe and likes right away. And last time, uh, during our 10th episode, we talked a lot about open source and the way companies use uh, open source to make money among other things. And for those who missed that episode, I recommend uh, listening to it first and then come back uh, to this one. Uh, by the way, the best way to not miss anything at all is to be signed up for our regular bi-weekly Memcadev uh, newsletter. Uh, MKDev Dispatch is where we compile the most interesting articles and videos we published for you and we spruce in with our thoughts and deliver to you every two weeks. And also uh, we have uh, a referral program that allows you to get cool t-shirts and mugs with your own portrait. So, uh, go uh, to the description and subscribe today. But uh, anyway, the reason why you want to listen to the 10th episode first is because today I would like us to delve into a topic that's been a matter of much debate in the industry is uh, the compatibility of open source technology and cybersecurity. Uh, this is something that I briefly uh, touched last time, but today I want to discuss this in detail. Uh, so we discuss how open source technologies affect the way we develop, uh, distribute, and use software, software basically, um, I don't know how to put it, democratizing innovation and uh, stimulating a global community of developers, yet I still do not entirely understand how with the increased adoption and reliance on these technologies, we can handle cybersecurity. Can openness and security even coexist? So what do you think, guys? I mean, uh, I know it's like uh, maybe a, a difficult uh, topic to discuss on a broad manner, but uh, there is a saying like uh, that uh, based on um, Linus's law, like given if, uh, how it's given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Um, <laughs> does it hold true in the context of cybersecurity? Like from your experience, how does the transparency of open source software uh, influence uh, its security. There's this famous thing about Linux and Windows is that uh, they always say that there are no viruses on Linux and there are always lots of them on Windows. And one of the reasons uh, is that Linux is open source and there is like way more visibility and control over what's happening. 
So, you know, like if everything is happening in open, it's a bit harder to kind of add some malware, even though it's not like guaranteed. There are also other things inside Linux that just are built in a way that prevent things like viruses in general. But one of the reasons I said is that Linux is open source. But even talking about this thing about the viruses, I only can remember one antivirus in Linux, this clan AV. Right. So it's the only one that I remember. I cannot ever think in another antivirus in, in Linux. What does not mean that there is no virus as a definition in, in Linux, because there is no sense to think that there is no virus or even that there is no way to, to attack. But yes, you're, you're right in this point. Yeah, but uh, Linux is like uh, a tool and is a software that is extremely widely used. And of course, a lot of people would like to contribute uh, not only to its convenience, but its uh, uh, security. But when it comes to smaller tools, uh, the tools that are dedicated to some particular uh, cases uh, like when we work with uh, cloud and that again access to uh, our code infrastructure uh, there are uh, so basically when we use cloud uh, I mean open source we expose our own infrastructure and uh, does it mean that we expose all vulnerabilities to potential attackers if you use open source, because they know how how it works from inside, how how by and by what means it connects to your infrastructure, and uh, then they can use it and just get access to inside of your code. I think you have two two okay two sides here. Of course, that if I show you all the all the map of my house, for sure that you can go and you can know where are my my weakness you can you know where are my windows you know where is everything and then you can attack my house this is one of the sizes and and of course that that yes this could be something like taking like a, okay i know that because i took this code and imagine these days with all these ai tools that you can take all the code and not only using no using this gpt or bar or whatever other uh, ai tools because they are not going to give you where are the problems, but you can generate your own uh, AI tool. And then you can say, okay, this is the Git repo. Study this repo and give me all the backdoors, all the security problems, everything that you found here, because I want to attack that. You can do that for sure. So, because you have everything. And if you are the bad guy, you're not going to tell to the good guys where are the problems, because you, you want to, to get benefit of that for sure. But you need to think that at the end, uh, in the other way, in the other side, the people who expose the code, at the end, the good side is that you have hundreds of people working and many people can find the issues. So this is the other side. And then you have CVEs, you have all these uh, security, let's call tickets, where it's telling that there is a problem here and every product that is related to this one know that there is a, an issue about that. So... Day by day, the security is something that is more working in common. So for sure that uh, a close environment, like imagine, uh, not every part of Microsoft, because some parts are open right now, but okay, imagine some close part of Microsoft that you don't know what is this code doing, more or less. 
for sure that can be attacked. So it does not mean that because the close the code is closed, nobody can find a bug. It's in the other way around. So you can find bugs everywhere. So but the, the thing is that the who find bugs? I know that there is a bug here. Now what do you want to do? Do you want to explode that because you want to get benefit? Mm-hmm. Economical, because you are a, a bad guy. Let's call it a cracker or something like that. Or a bad hacker. Or you are a good guy. And you want to tell, okay, there is a problem here. I'm going to make a pull request. I found this issue. So please change this part of coding, all the application in the planet Earth that are using this 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 application because there is a way to to attack you. And there are hundreds of cases in the history where one person found a problem and then he he disclosed the problem. And everyone tried to, okay, everyone fixed the problem. The problem is you never know when the issue was originally found. So if you take this, exactly. like, what was this, this huge issue two years ago, three years ago, the Spectre, when they found out that basically every processor more or less is vulnerable to a certain caching attack because all this architecture works in the same way. So you could basically hack any device which is running Intel process. And then also AMD was using the similar technique. You know, there was like lots of buzz around it when this vulnerability was discovered, but it's been around for like a decade or maybe more than a decade. And maybe you'll never know how was it exploited till it became public. And same goes for this uh, last year or two years ago with Log4j problem, which allows you to basically remote execute code on any Java application that uses Log4j for logging. And that's like every Java application more or less. And we also don't know like for how long this issue existed and how it was exploited. Because imagine you find this issue, one option is that what Pablo said, you go and you say like, yes, I found this problem, here is the fix. Or like, there's actually a very complex process how you should report about um, such things. But another option is that you could just use this vulnerability for your own profit secretly and whatever, use Log4j issue to steal some sensitive data and I know, buy some stocks based on this data, for example, or do other crazy things. Yeah, because you need to differentiate, for example, what happened if you found an issue in, I, I don't know, whatever repo that nobody used, so at least it's only used by 30 people, and it has only three developers. Nothing happened. But, you know, what happened if you have a, a problem, you know, for example, like these zero days that is... Uh, uh, these kind of attacks that you you can take absolutely control of everything, and I remember that there were zero days in in many companies, like for example LinkedIn, Facebook, all these kind of companies. So and they don't disclose the code, so the code is uh, you know is, is closed. But most of the companies use uh, open source code. Okay, I can say that all every company use some part of open source code, and even I can tell that maybe this open source code is most reviewed at any other code in the world. But the problem is not the guy who made this open source code. The problem is one Pablo in the world, one Peter or one whatever, who goes to uh, uh, imagine Facebook or LinkedIn, whatever company or Google, and he starts to code. And he made a, a little part of code that maybe is exposed. Nobody take care of that. And at the end, you made the, the biggest backdoor ever in the world. So, and, and then you can, you read every day a guy's. So yesterday I was watching a, 
a podcast about a guy who 19 years old in Spain and he is the most famous hacker in Spain. He was in all these uh, policy databases, in all these uh, Minister of Justice databases, in all the companies' databases, one by one, one after the other. Okay, because these days it's super simple to be a bad guy. If you don't care to be in prison, for sure. Because you only need to go to these webs, uh, you get a exploit, and you through the exploit, and if the exploit is working, okay, if not, I will go to the second exploit. Because at the end, I'm going to scan all your ports, and I'm going to find a, a vulnerability that, as Kirill was telling before, uh, who knows that this vulnerability is there. If it's only the bad guys, then I can explode the, the vulnerability, try to attack you in this way, and then I am inside, and then I can get the info. I, I remember, Leo, like when you, when I told you that at any given moment, Dozens of people try to hack our website. You were surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That if you actually check the logs, you can see that all the time someone tries to hit particular URLs on mkdev.me, like .me slash WP admin, so this WordPress admin interface, because they know that there is like whatever, like 70% of all websites are WordPress, and then not all of them are up to date, and then there's a list of vulnerabilities in WordPress. So you can actually just go one website after the other and try to hack them because the most likely website uses WordPress and you can just access it and uh, steal the data or do something else with it. Yeah, and for uh, the for, for most of them, the logging for admin account is admin. <laughs> so you don't have even to figure a new login. It sounds like uh, I, always, I, I thought, I used to think that it's stupid, all these script kiddies who just scan the internet for like ports and the particular path. But then after I saw so many cases when, like there was this problem with the MongoDB, when someone discovers that there are like thousands of MongoDB clusters, completely unsecured, not just admin, admin password, but they just unsecured completely and exposed to the internet. All the AWS S3 buckets that have like completely public access because some someone was too lazy, was not aware that they should actually secure a three bucket. So the scanning actually works. It's like, it's happening. And this uh, evil people still do this kind of port scans and URL scans because it's actually working. It's possible to get some websites hacked like this. And, and, and even famous cases, this one with the cameras. As you know, to, okay, Google, you can search for the type of camera, Google or whatever others um, search, you can go to Bind or whatever. And you find for a, for a type of camera, and you can see hundreds of cameras that most of them are open, as Kiel says, and you can go directly. The, so, the other day, you know, uh, I was reading that there is uh, in this um, parking, you know, this new parking that in where I live in, in the island where I live in, is is super common, this kind of parking now that you go with the car, you read the, the plate of the car, mm -hmm. and when you go in and when you go out, you only need to, okay, you pay, but you know, you don't need to introduce the ticket anymore. So it's not that you need to introduce a ticket, so automatically read the plate and then the, the fence go up and then you, you, you leave the, the parking. And, and those, I was reading in, in one place that, okay, they're always using one kind of uh, brand, always, at least where I live in, in Spain. And that all of those, they have a ISO, they have a back. And you can connect with Bluetooth to all of them. Mm -hmm. And I was I was not believing that. And the other day with with my wife, we went to the car. Then I was with the laptop. I really you can connect. 
and you can see everything. So you can open and, and close the door if you want. So it, the, this kind of uh, security of of themes is, it, I think, is more more dangerous than the internet. So the security of the open source that is reviewed by expert and even created by expert. Because the problem is that I am not going to talk about the case of an uh, an atomic uh, nuclear the central, something like that, because I have to imagine that this is not connected to internet. But imagine whatever factory, because it's super cool when you read these uh, magazines about security and hacking. Always there are two kinds of security, um, you know, the, the, the hacking of, of software and then the hacking of, of hardware. And this is super interesting because it's talking about hacking of themes that you use daily. Like, for example, time ago, there was a guy who went to uh, an airplane and he tried to prove that he was able to control the the I don't I don't remember the model of the airplane because the thing is next. Normally the when you go to the airplane and you have you can plug an USB, the ideal scenario is that you have a, a computer for this USB and you have another computer to control the the airplane. Because you know that there is something like a little data center inside every airplane. So then the, the problem is that the guy that plugged the, the the USB, he was proving that he was able to control the airplane. So because through this USB was able to connect to the computer and was able to take control of the of the of the airplane. Uh, and was able to to turn the, the airplane. So what I mean is that this kind of security is the most and secure the most scary to me. And, and we were talking about electric cars the other day. So, and the software of these cars, this is really scary. And this thing, all of us will go with our cell phone. And you see how beautiful is yes. the sticker? <laughs> stickers. So uh, this is really scary because you go with that every day and they know where you are and they know what you are talking. And, and your laptop, they have a camera. You know, this kind of thing for me are more scary than uh, an open soft that is, uh, you know, checked by thousands of people monthly. Yeah, but is, if we get back to uh, more or less your everyday practice uh, with open source software, uh, one thing is vulnerab vulnerabilities inside this software, but other thing that is interested me in, uh, is even is the fact that uh, you use some particular open source is uh, creates a vulnerability to your infrastructure. For example, if you use I don't know like Terraform or Kubernetes, uh, open source and um, open source part of Kubernetes. Uh, so, for example. Uh, a hacker knew, knows that you are using Kubernetes and not, he knows how Kubernetes works. And basically this gives him the idea of your infrastructure setup or something like that. And he can use the, this very fact against you. Is that the case uh, in your everyday work or there are, so I, I mean, should you uh, create a, some security layer on top of uh, security uh, measures that are already implemented in Kubernetes? Okay. Yeah, yes, because there are like not that many. 
It doesn't have anything to do with open source or not, right? So regardless of if you use an open source, you still write your own software that you sell to your customers and all of this needs to be secured. So it doesn't matter if it's about open source tool or about your own software or about some cloud provider, you should still do perform the same measures to protect your endpoints, to protect the traffic inside, to do the threat detection. So when someone is inside Kubernetes cluster, for example, you should get an alert that something suspicious is happening. Which could be done with some. Yeah, so the, there is a layer between uh, Kubernetes clusters and all other part of your um, code that prevents uh, an attack attacker to uh, go between uh, these clusters or something. You like need that. to look at this in, in this because Kubernetes is not a security platform; it's a tool to run containers. It's an orchestrator, so it does not. It has, for example, API of Kubernetes has this role-based access control, and it uses like in- encryption for the traffic between you and the API. All on top of this is your job to secure the cluster. So you need to figure out like how do you get notified when someone is when someone managed to get inside of one of your containers and tries to execute some script. So you should prevent the possibility of someone running the scripts inside your containers. And if someone figured out the way to do this, you should get notified, for instance. So it's because it's it will happen, uh, not because of Kubernetes, for example, just because you misconfigured Kubernetes. Because there are, it's an open source tool, there are many ways to use it. You can build the whole platform on it, it's super flexible, which means there are many ways that it can become insecure. Mm-hmm. And same goes for practically every software, including your own software. So it could be that you're using Java and there is this issue with log4j, but it could be that your API or HTTP endpoints just do not process requests properly and they allow SQL injections. And that's also like, you need to think about this case. So it cannot be just about, let's wrap open source tools with actual layer of security because the enemy is everywhere, not only on <laughs> open source level. But... And, and even... Sorry, sorry, no, sorry. But cl- clearly, if there's like if you're using some particular open source tool and there is a vulnerability reported, then you are at risk and you should update. But you need to always evaluate if this vulnerability actually is applicable to you. For example, when you use some open source tool, you're not using one open source tool. If you use Kubernetes, you actually use like probably hundreds, if not thousands, of different like libraries in Golang, because it, and then it's not just mm-hmm. one code base; it connects to many many other code bases. And vulnerability in each of these code bases could mean that you're in danger. And what Paula said, like these reports about vulnerabilities, they're more or less open, so everyone can just find that, okay, this Python library of version 237 has the issue that if someone inserts emoji, then your whole application just falls apart. But it could be that in your case, it's not important because you only use this library as a dependency for some other library, and it's only used inside some internal tool, and there's actually no way in your particular case, that emoji will be inserted. So you, in the end, it's not like you should not care, but it's not your highest priority to fix this. So at any given moment, all of your libraries have some kind of vulnerability, either like a minor one or a big one. And it's the job of infrastructure team, of security team. Ideally, like they work together to identify these kind of things and work on fixing them. And even you need to think something these days, imagine. Uh, I don't know, whatever Postgres, uh, whatever application that you use, they are super happy that the biggest customers tells that they are using their own application. So, for example, you have MongoDB, 
and you go to MongoDB page, they are going to tell you we are using MongoDB. If you go to LinkedIn and you check the, the CV of one person who is working in the company X, he is telling, using Mongo, uh, blah, 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 uh, uh, Kubernetes, uh, AWS. So the, the people who is working in the companies, they are telling to you what products are used in the company. So because mm -hmm, they, are, yes. they are telling what, what are the products. So, but even the company says, proud to be partners of this company. So at the end, everyone is telling what they are doing because you cannot close this door because mostly everyone, you know that mostly everyone is at some point he's using Apache. You know that. You know that mostly everyone at some point is using a one database. So SQL kind of database and non-SQL kind of database. You know that 99% of the people is using Linux. You know that uh, you, you take the, the most common pieces and at the end, you know that most of the people is using the most common pieces. And I don't know what is the biggest problem because if you find an issue in one of the most common pieces, for sure that you can attack most of the places. But if you find an issue in one of the most uncommon issues, mm -hmm. the good thing is that uh, nobody, maybe because there are some kind of application that nobody going to, is going to update. Because this is one of the other problems. Uh, maybe the version 2.1, there is a huge issue, but you need to update to the version 2.3 or 2.4 or 5 or 6, 7. And maybe you have something that you never updated in the last five years or 10 years because it's working. And then for sure that you have a problem. So what I mean is that today, everyone knows what others are using. And, and the problem is not in that. The, the problem is that every company try to have updates always of everything, but everything is related to, to everything. For example, if you want to use Kubernetes and you want to have any storage over Kubernetes, normally you use CSI, but maybe imagine there is another company like uh, Cisco, like NetApp, like whatever company who's creating another product. And maybe there is a problem in Kubernetes, but there is no problem in these other hardware uh, companies. But the problem here in Kubernetes is affecting this one. So, and in the other way around. So it is so complex that you cannot you cannot close things. In most of the cases, the security in the companies is, uh, oh, oh, my virgin, please, nothing happened here. So because you close your eyes and you say, so there are so many combinations, so many amount of things that you said, come on, please don't attack me, don't attack me, don't attack me. That's all, it's the only thing that you can do. There are no challenges that we couldn't overcome. Whether it is immediate infrastructure problems or planning a future project, we won't simply answer your questions. We become a part of your team to help you complete the mission. Our solutions consider the interests of your business and the combined expertise of the industry, as our staff is made up of more than a dozen experts in different areas who share decades of field-tested experience and knowledge with you. You guys uh, specifically make it sound so scary and complicated, or uh, because from my perspective, this is uh, like a really a really complex problem, uh, and I assume each company should track all the security uh, issues and potential uh, vulnerabilities on each uh, part of their work 
And who is that guy who does this? Because I imagine you you not only have to understand how cybersecurity works and to, to what issues you are exposed uh, with the code and what problems may happen, but you at the same time, you have to understand everything that you to do uh, in your everyday work. Like uh, you, you have to understand cloud. You have to understand in AWS, uh, Azure, Google Cloud, to be able to track all the vulnerabilities and understand how they affect your code and your company. So who are these superheroes who can do all of this? Because this sounds super complicated. There, there is no like one person, because so in the DevOps world, there's even the term DevSecOps, when security is a bit more involved, because traditionally security comes like at the very last stage or when things are already deployed, for example. Now, the an ideal scenario, you work together with security people in your company to prevent things from happening. Or like, for example, if there's a new feature being built, you should also have someone with a bit more knowledge in security to actually like do some analysis if you're doing something stupid in terms of security. Like if you're exposing some administrative endpoint to the whole world. Uh, but it's actually a big issue because I was reading the other day that there's like for every... Uh, sounds like for, for every 40 developers and 10 infrastructure people, there is only one uh, IT security uh, professional in the company. So, so some like proportion like this so is like, it's just not enough. And they, as you say, it's impossible to be involved in all of this. So part of this responsibility falls on the infrastructure platform engineers, because for sure it's also part of the job, like, uh, like, Pablo and I, for example, we're not cybersecurity specialists, but we know many, many things related to security that are around cloud infrastructure, for example, because it's part of the job. And I think that's how companies should treat it, is that it's, it is part of the job, not only of someone for whom it's a full-time job, but also of platform engineers, about of system administrators, of developers. And it should be part of the software development lifecycle as well. So you should have security scans in your CI/CD pipeline. You should have some continuous scans on the infrastructure. Uh, try to prevent from uh, bad misconfigurations from happening. Because it's not just that there is this vulnerability in some open source software. There are like hundreds of many other ways that you can be vulnerable to an attack. Uh, it just could be like with open source software. So uh, what happened with Terraform? three weeks ago, I think, is that one particular version of Terraform, 1.2.2, something like this. When you tried to, like, HashiCorp figured that there was a mismatch in the hash of the package. So when they published the, uh, the versions of Terraform, they also attached the, the hash. So they basically calculate some string for this package, and you can look at the string, verify your local binary, and if they match, then you are sure that this package came from HashiCorp. Because it could be that you download Terraform, and then someone between you and HashiCorp just gave you exploited version of Terraform, and you're just using this version of Terraform, thinking it's it's usual Terraform, but it actually just secretly leaks the data to third parties. And there is no issue with open source tool. The open source tool doesn't have this vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It's just that someone tricked you to download these malicious versions of Terraform. And that's what happened. I think uh, some weeks ago, the Trashikor was publishing 
I said, code climate, the CICD company, they were forced to figure this out, that they got notification that the hash does not match for this particular Terraform version. So it's like, you know, like, Hashicorp says it should be ABC, and your local system says it's like DEF. Like, fuck, so that means my Terraform version is not the real one. Like, what? And could be, it's it's been like this for like one year that you were using this broken Terraform version. <laughs> and, and why? Because... You could actually prevent this from happening because when you install software, you, could, you should also verify this MD5 or these hashes of the software. That's what also Linux is doing when you try to install the package. There's like a separate configuration that it checks upstream also for these hashes. But if you just download something from some package from internet, there is no this verification. So like another uh, another way how and, people and can crazy. How fucking smart is the people? Really, to, to do bad things. You know, because how the people is able to trick and to track and to, to find a little bug to, to say, okay, I'm going to do that. And maybe they are not going to get any economical benefit. They are, maybe they are not going to attack. They are not spies like in the movies. You know, they only want to do that because they enjoy doing that. So it, it's like yesterday in this podcast, I was telling one guy when they were asking, how do you feel with 18 years old at one o'clock in the morning? you are at home while your mother is sleeping in the other room, that you are in the <laughs> database of the na national policy in Spain with all the people there. And the guy was telling, I was feeling like God. Yes, but <laughs> the, the problem is that three weeks later, he was arrested, no? So and he needs to be in prison. So the, this is maybe the, the, the main problem because most of the people think like, wow, the, the, the adrenaline, no? It's like, this is crazy. And, and talking about one, one other problem about this, how to fix the problems, because one of the things that are used most is containers. And the containers are working with layers. So you, for example, you have your, your container and you always have something, it's a first sentence called front. And in this front, you are telling what is the, the previous image where your container is starting. So uh, imagine that you have a, an onion, you have different layers. So I'm going to start in this layer and I'm going to add my, my new layer on top of the previous layers. The problem is you can say, okay, I'm going to update my container and my container is updated only updating my layer, but you are not updating all others that you have down. And, and this is happening in many places because the problem is that when you update yours, you need to update the previous one, you need to update the previous and the previous and the previous, and sometimes it's two, three, four, five. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, I even wanted to ask about a lot of dependencies uh, when it comes to creating something like this. Like uh, you, when something happens in one place, it uh, pulls uh, all other things and who knows what will happen in the other place of the code. Yes, and, and many times when you do these updates, what is happening is that the code is not working. And, and this is the problem because uh, you have something in this level, version 3, and previously the base was the version 2 or something else, imagine operating system, but then you jump. And when you jump, there is a new library or there is a new functionality or there is something that your code is not considering. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as soon as you update all the previous layer, when you attach your new version, it's not working. And, and this is a problem. And, and this is happening because all these pipelines that update the images mostly never update the, the base images. Mm -hmm. Only update the code that you have, but it's not updating the, the front. And if this front is updated, maybe the previous front is not updated either. And if this is updated, maybe the previous is not updated. So it's a cascade of 
of updates that you need to do that at the end ended in that <laughs> I can tell you. It's different, for example, when you work for a, a company who is working with money. When you work with a bank or something like that, everything is security. So you cannot move a finger without security in the middle. But when you're working in whatever other company that is not working with money directly, it's different. You know? mm. Security is not normally the, the priority number one. It's actually a good example, right? Because we used to bitch about banks like being very slow to innovate because there's like... And, and then if you see like quite often, there are some <laughs> financial companies like um, there is this bank in Germany, N26, uh, they used to be built on top of Wirecard, uh, which collapsed. <laughs> and but it's much important uh, for this. And they were really like they appeared as this very modern digital bank. They were building lots of lots of new features in the first years, and then they got a banking license of their own. So they became a bank, and they didn't need this Wirecard uh, as this banking backend. And if you look at the amount of features and new things they release afterwards, it's crazy. It's like two three times less. They are just. They, I think for two years, I just didn't see any anything new happening. Because now, when you have a banking license, you have to comply with so many regulations that it's really hard to do things. But th that's also an example of like what happens when you actually like take security as serious as possible. Like you also you put a stick in your wheels and you cannot move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, and I wanted to like briefly touch uh, what basically these people do in not in uh, financial companies, not in fintech, but in a regular companies. So the guys and the people who are responsible for their security do they I don't know do they run tests or some uh, applications like those who are from uh, quality assurance. Uh, do they have their own tools that check whether your application, whether all the parts of it are secure enough? Uh, and how do they communicate and interact uh, with um, developers on an everyday basis? These days, you, you have scams for everything. As soon as you have a new, you want to download, depends on the place. Again, there are companies where you said, I want to install that, you go to internet to download, that's all, I use that. And then let's see what happened. Mm -hmm. But there are companies, more secure companies, where when you want to uh, download something, uh, like a band that we were working ten ago, kidding me. So where, where you wanted to download something, you need to request permissions to download something. So, and and if you want to get this image, you need to request permission to get this image. And it was even easy for us to even create our own image rather than to download the image. So. At the end, everything depends. Uh, and then when, when these images appear, they do a scan. But we need to remember something. The companies scan about the errors that they know. So, and this is the problem. Mm -hmm. You are only going to scan about the CBEs, the security issues that you know that are in a database, an international database known by everyone. So, but if there is an issue that is not known, for sure that is not going to be scanned. There are another applications they can check your code and check if they can find a vulnerability. For sure, you can do these kind of scans too. So, and, and it's going to tell you uh, if you have, for example, here a buffer overflow, you have something like that here, and then you can try to remediate these issues. But this is different kind of scan because this is related to your code. So, but the code from third-party companies that you add and you 
And those codes are not open source. For example, you cannot scan. You need to trust in this company. Yes. There is a, another set of tools that I find really exciting, this threat detection, especially for Kubernetes and these containers. It's basically the idea of, <clears throat> it's really like a mix of um, open source and the paid products in this space, is you install something on your Kubernetes cluster, and then it starts initial scan, so it looks at what your applications are running. So it says then your Ruby application runs like bundle exec rail s to start the server, and normally no other commands. So it builds a baseline of what's your applications executing, and then you can say like lock this baseline. So whenever there is any malicious process that tries to run whatever else, it will just block it, which I think is pretty cool as long as this tool itself doesn't have vulnerability. But it's there are many, many layers, like there are many scans. There is like this tool, for example, called Chekhov, which allows you to validate your infrastructure as code for not vulnerabilities, but for misconfiguration. So it seems like you try to create database with a public internet access, then it will tell you in your pipeline, like, like no, it's not okay. Just don't create this kind of database. You should fix it. But in yeah, the, that's, that's it, a cool... Sorry, in the same way, you have yeah. applications that are doing the, the other side. So, you know, you have many applications that you can find backdoors, you can find the security issues. So you, you have apps where you can manage your gear and you see uh, this IP, this public IP, and it's exposing whatever number of ports. And then you do a map, a map of these ports, and then you know if this is filtered or not filtered by the firewall. And after that, you start to execute whatever kind of attack because uh, there are many ways to know what application is behind the in the other side of the port, and then you start to do thousands of attacks, attacks to this one. Because it, what I mean is that in the same way that, let's call the good guys, I don't know why, but okay, they they, they try to execute this kind of application to, to find the, uh, the problems and try to fix those problems. In the other side, the bad guys, let's call it this way, they try to to do the other way. They try to, to find the errors and, and try to attack. So at the end, you can do an experiment. You can get one IP in AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, public IP, and just post uh, publicly a VM, uh, EC2, computer jack, whatever. And you check the logs. In 10 minutes, you start to have thousands of logs. You just post an Apache, and it's crazy. Boom, 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 every second, every second. Because there are people there are bots doing that daily. Try to find what do you have to try to... And, and only because of pleasure or, or because there are bad guys or whatever thing. Because, for example, today, how do you know, Leo, or that you don't have anything in your laptop that is, for example, controlling your camera? Or how do you know that nobody is tracking you in your cell phone? How do you know that nobody is doing that to you? Well, I absolutely don't, but at the same time, I have like these tools, yeah, like <laughs> disable uh, something, but I don't know if it even disables it. <laughs> because, okay, so th th uh, there is a, a famous uh, picture of uh, AI tool is Snapchat, where you ask Snapchat, if, uh, do you know uh, where am I? 
and Snapchat answers, no, I don't have access to your current location. But then you ask it, uh, where's the closest uh, McDonald's? And it's uh, <laughs> it gives you direction to the McDonald's on your street. And the closest McDonald's to you is here. <laughs> but how do you know that if you don't have access to my location? And it's, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know where you are. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, I don't know where's the closest McDonald's. So yeah, even I have, even if, uh, even if I have all these tracks disabled, I'm still not sure if I'm not being tracked. It's like a social contract, right? Because it's not really the what we discussed with the cybersecurity. It's more like you make a like agreement with whatever with the Apple, with iPhones, with Google, with Android. It's like yeah, I told you not to track, and then you will not track. So let's like. Let's just agree. It's, it's and you need to believe. Yes, it, it's a. There's like there is no hacking in the vault. It's like yes, this company told us that it will not track. If you trust it, okay. Yes, I, I trust you. <laughs> because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible is... not track today. Because what you need to do is you need to remove the the headers. You know, you don't want to track. So it's in the other way around. So. So it's because it's so simple to track these days, whatever application, that at the end you don't want to track, you, do, you need to do it the other way around. So it's even some cases more complicated to remove this, this thing that uh, to do the track. But the, the point is the security is not something based only in one point. The security is based... In, and, and the open source security is not worse at all that the non-open security. You know, at the end is the is the same. So the, the problem is not what are the known problems. The problem is what are the unknown problems. And this is the real problem. I remember we've been discussing with uh, Kirill why we use some particular tools and not the others. And the answer that he gave to me that I liked is that for example, when we use Dropbox and we can be sure that uh, what we store there can is secured. And if it's not, there is a company that we can sue if something goes wrong, for example. But it's not the case with uh, open source. Yeah, so, for example, if I trust my data to some open source tools, like, for example, uh, this cost optimization tool that you, Kirill, described the other day on the article uh, named "Can you automate <clears throat> cloud tests?" Uh, the tool, the tool is, I believe, InfraCost, and it's open source. And from my understanding, it has access to a lot of things inside of my infrastructure. It gathers information about what resources do I use and at what capacity and how much I pay for them. And it can, can even uh, adjust the amounts that I spend on a certain, certain part of my infrastructure. And I trust my, this sensitive uh, data to this open source tool. But if something goes wrong, who I can complain to for... In, InfraCost, like, the feature of InfraCost is that it does not look at your actual infrastructure, it looks at your infrastructure's code. So if you have, like, Terraform code, which creates, like, five EC2 instances, it will calculate how much it will cost per month. And then it will be, maybe will recommend to do something about it. The thing is that you need to trust that it does not send information about what it discovered, your infrastructure's code, somewhere else and then resell it for example because of that it's, it's a really cool tool uh, very easy to use so it's actually like you 
takes you five minutes to install it for all of your infrastructure as code repositories and get this cost reports. But, you know, then you need to think about where this data is going. I actually don't think that they do anything but or anything at all with this data. But again, just because I trust these guys. <laughs> yeah, but from a manager perspective, like when I uh, when I allow my uh, developers team to use certain tools, I still need to think uh, how this data is used. And uh, I also, um, I wanted to ask the thing about it, uh, Kirill, uh, about uh, this cost optimization tool uh, from a manager's perspective. Uh, does it allow me to not only track, but uh, configure it without a deeper understanding of um, uh, without a deeper understanding of infrastructure and how how it works to prevent it to prevent my company to spend a lot of money on that or it's still a tool for developers rather than uh, managers. In case of InfraCost, I think it's a nice small utility to give you a rough estimate. But if you actually need some proper cost analysis, cost prediction reports, you need to look for this in your cloud provider. So AWS has Cost Explorer, which recently was re-optimized to be especially manager-friendly and less human-friendly. Well, mm -hmm. it, it, became, it became increasingly <laughs> hard to quickly filter through costs, but you could generate very good Excel spreadsheets out of it easy. So, and before it was like you could quickly click around the UI to get all the cost information. So that's where is your, your actual cost and your cost prediction. You get like per hour metrics of how much you spend. And infra cost, I like, I like the tool, but I'm always hesitant to introduce it anywhere because it ignores, well, it doesn't ignore it, just it's hard to give you a cost estimate just based on your infrastructure as code. It works for static infrastructure with like RDS clusters, so database instances, the compute instances. But if you have some serverless solution, it can actually help you. If you have an S3 bucket for storing files where you pay per file and per API request, a tool like InfraCost can actually help you. It doesn't know about your use case. For example, for MKD, if we use AWS Lambda for background job processing in our Rails application, and the amount of jobs depends on how much traffic we get because we process uh, requests to collect some simple analytics. So InfraCost has no way to actually know how many requests we get per day if we have a spike or anything like this because it's its nature is static. I think they were working on some feature to pull information from the mm. from APIs like this Cost Explorer on AWS, but they didn't really check if how far they got. And I think in the end it's the source of truth will be on the cloud provider side. And a tool like InfraCost is just something nice you can plug into your CI CD pipeline. So when you open the pull request, you see some nice numbers, just as a ballpark estimate of what will happen. And uh, getting back to managers and the estimation of uh, costs, uh, it's uh, because uh, the infrastructure is so flexible and scalable and it's how you pay uh, uh, depends on how you use it, uh, meaning that if you have a lot of users simultaneously connected to your application and use and overuse it, so you, your spendings will increase. And 
there are tools that allow you to track uh, these spendings in basically in real time and then uh, uh, generate the plan for the future spendings based on these graphs graphics but is there a way to like uh to make these costs not depending on the usage but like to be more fixed because uh for manager like it's a nightmare to think that uh one day something happens with the application and it's go viral on some tiktok and then he wakes up uh, seeing that his bill increased uh, 10 times and cause just because um, the developers uh, set infrastructure that way so like what you describe is one of the biggest obstacles for some companies to migrate to the cloud because they need to change their thinking from budgeting or fixed budgeting for like a quarter in advance because they know okay this quarter we need to buy like 10 servers and like cable them and that's it to move to this dynamic nature of the cloud and you can in aws commit to particular also in google like in any cloud doesn't matter you can commit to particular usage you can say i want to spend 20k per month and then you get a discount but if you spend if you use more resources more infrastructure than is covered by 20k you will still pay extra that's like Datadog, for example. They are famous for like... <laughs> oh, there was actually like... Re- re- there was recently a story <laughs> about Datadog and Coinbase because apparently Coinbase, okay. they had so much money in 2021 that they committed to Datadog $65 million of usage. Every year, right? Yeah, so they say like... Only using Datadog. Like, yeah, they said like basically, we want to spend $65 million per year on Datadog. Here is the contract signed. Okay, doesn't matter if usage or not. They committed to this usage, <laughs> and then, like, what? Like, once you sign this contract, you can do anything. Watch if you don't like data doc, and like, watch in three months you realize you actually <laughs> only like you need one hundred times less monitoring capacity from data doc that is covered by such contract. So yes, it gives a peace of mind to manager to sign something like this, but you still need to pay extra if you overuse and if underuse well mm-hmm. you'll just feel stupid because you overpaid so it's just managers <laughs> in this case need to change the, the mental model that it's pay as you go you pay for every little thing as it happens and that's just the way the cloud is you should try to optimize in any case you should be a bit aware of what you're paying for but in the end it's it's the cloud it's it's elastic by nature including costs but the, but the cloud is like when you go to the casino. At the end, there is always one winner. That is, oh, no, is, is, Pablo, is the, is the don't house. tell that. No, but true, it's the house. So what I mean is that it's, it's made in the way, it's making the way that always the cloud providers are going to win. So because as Kirill is telling, you can say, okay, I'm going to book 30K this month because I want to use this money for that. But at the end, if you don't spend this money, it's money that you already paid. So, but if you, and, and even it's, it's a, because for, imagine, AWS, this 30K, they can cost to them 20K. So they have, imagine, a, a profit of 50%. But in if you don't have this book in advance, maybe you pay not 30, you pay 40K. So then the, the, 
the profit that you have in a, is, is 100%. So it's not these numbers. But what I try to explain is that always they are going to sell you something with a discount, but always with a, a profit on top. So what I mean is that if you, uh, in mind that you, you want to buy cloth and then you pay 300 euros every month to a company and then you can go to mm -hmm. a company, you can go to Mango, to Sarah, to whatever, and you can buy cloth. And then the problem is, what happens is you one month you are sick and you cannot go out of your house, but you already paid 300. So then the company gets the 300 because this is our deal. And, and the next month you spend 250, okay, the company saves another 50, but the next month you spend 500. Mm. Okay, if you spend the 500, you're going to pay 200 more on top of the 300 and you will need to pay that. But there are, there are should be tools and I, I assume there are such tools that allows you to optimize your costs on infrastructure. Because if we take, for example, uh, how you spend electricity uh, in your house, uh, you may turn on lights on every room, uh, expecting that at some point someone will enter this room and they need uh, for the room to be lit. But instead of doing that, you Uh, turn a light uh, only when you uh, enter this room and you turn the lights off when you leave the room, thus uh, optimizing your costs on electricity. And after that, uh, each month, uh, the energy company calculates how many, how many electricity you spend in total. So I assume there are tools in infrastructure that allows me to deactivate some, I don't know, application or to power them so that they don't spend uh, AWS or Google Cloud resources for me and helping me not to spend extra money on that that I'm not using right now. Is that the case? Yeah, there is you know, like some solutions from AWS. There's the offer. There are like lots of software as a service that do it. There is like some open source tools. That basically, the standard case is that what we always recommend to our clients as well is that if you have some dev or staging environment that is only needed during the workday, just top it for the night and for the weekend, and then you save. I think like 46 or like maybe even like Pablo is better with math than me, but it's. So like, let's, let's say 50%, like you cut your cloud cost on this environment by half, just because every day is like 24 Crazy. hours, so eight hours, it's going to be stopped even more because the workday is like eight to 10 hours. So that's 14 hours of savings per day, plus 48 on the weekend, lots of savings if you just stop them. Um, and it's not so hard because cloud infrastructure is API driven and writing, even without any extra tools, you could just write some Python script to do it in like a few hours and get the savings. And then again, this is uh, uh, an open source solution that <laughs> still uh, gets us back to the idea that you guys need to understand what tools you are using, how you protect yourself from your data leakage and how you optimize your spendings and whatnot. So even though uh, today Pablo and Kirill basically proved to me that uh, open source solution uh, in most cases are more secure, you still have to pay a lot of attention. But anyway, thank you everyone who've been listening to us today, who joined us. I hope you liked it and that you learned something new today. If you have further questions about it, 
on how to tweak your open source or maybe uh, questions about cost optimizations. So that, that's a very deep topic. Don't hesitate to write us and just ask us directly by replying on your week, bi-weekly uh, MKDF dispatch newsletter. Uh, give us your questions and give us our likes and subscribes. Thank you for everybody who joined us today. This was 11th episode of DevOps Accents and your hosts, Leo, Kirill, and Pablo. The cloud tech industry is evolving so fast. Do you keep up with it by improving your skills or upskilling your team? At MKDev, we offer a variety of workshops for just that, from the basics to expert knowledge. Before delivering our workshops and training sessions, we carry out a detailed assessment of each participant. To make sure the workshop is helpful for you and your team, we will add more content to it or throw out what you already know. Or we create a custom workshop specifically for the needs of your team and the specifics of your project.